In, in his vivid record of the Great Fire of London, Samuel Pepys noted on the 5th of September, 1666, how he walked into the city and found the exchange a sad sight, nothing standing there of all the statues or pillars, but Sir Thomas Gresham's picture in the corner. By picture, he meant his portrait statue, which had been placed in the courtyard of the Royal Exchange, uh, founded by Gresham just under a century earlier. Ranged around the, uh, the courtyard, as you can see from this uh, engraving, are also statues of all the kings and queens of England, from Edward the Confessor um, to the current monarch, Charles II. The survival of just Gresham's statue was also observed by John Evelyn in an entry in his diary two days later, describing people walking among the ruins as like men in a dismal desert, he noted how Sir Thomas Gresham's statue, though fallen from its niche in the Royal Exchange, remained entire, when all those of ye kings since ye conquest were broken to pieces. Did those wandering citizens, in their state of shock, fear this symbolic destruction of the monarchy was a portent for the future. After all, it had only been six years since the Commonwealth had come to an end and Charles restored to the throne. Perhaps they took comfort in the survival of Gresham's statue, presaging that the city would rise again like a phoenix. For with his two bequests, the wealthy Mercer, Sir Thomas, was still dominating the life of London nearly a century after his death in 1579. The first bequest was the Royal Exchange. In 1550, Gresham was the king's merchant or agent in Antwerp, becoming de facto England's ambassador in Europe. This, this painting of him, um, which is also on the wall there, um, uh, is, was possibly by Hans Holbein, and it now belongs to the Mercer's Company. Um, he, was, uh, he, he was impressed by the Antwerp Bourse and resolved to create a similar trading centre in <coughs> London. Purchase of the land at the intersection of Threadneedle Street and Cornhill was secured by subscriptions from the city's leading merchants and citizens, while Gresham built the Bourse at his personal expense. Construction was completed at the end of 1567, and three years later, it was given its royal title by Elizabeth I. The building consisted of a piazza where merchants could meet and do business, while shops were situated in the galleries above. In his diary, Pepys recorded purchasing a wide range of goods, including linen and gloves and a muff. Gresham's second bequest arose from the death of his only legitimate son, Richard, as a teenager in 1564. At the time, Thomas was busy in the development of the exchange, but he now had to think what to do with his vast fortune. In his will drawn up in 1575, Gresham stipulated that the majority of his assets be divided between the Corporation of London and the Worshipful Company of Mercers to be used to fund a project that became Gresham College. Seven professors were to be appointed, drawn by the universities of Oxford and Cambridge, 
Uh, they were to lecture successively on each day of the week, giving their lectures in Latin and English, as Claire explained, for the gratuitous instruction of all those who chose to attend. In addition to the traditional art subjects of divinity, music, law, and rhetoric, there were to be professors of astronomy, geometry, and physics. Gresham's widow, who I see over there, hanging over there on the wall, um, she, uh, uh, resisted the implementation of this project, but with her death in November 1596, the college could be founded in the extensive townhouse that Gresham had built on Bishopsgate. Uh, this is an early 18th century engraving of the, of, of, of the uh, uh, house, which of course was, could be easily turned into a, into a college. Here the professors were to be housed. One of the provisions was that they should not be married, and they were paid the generous sum of £50 a year for giving their lectures. The college and its professors were to play an important part in the lives of the two great English diarists of the 17th century, John Evelyn and Samuel Pepys. These two men were to become close friends, but this was no foregone conclusion, for they were very different characters from very different backgrounds. John Evelyn was born in 1620 at Wooten, a country house in Surrey, into a family that had made a considerable fortune from the monopoly on gunpowder, this was quite a useful trade to be in at the time. Uh, and this, uh, uh, this uh, lithograph, this engraving, uh, was made as a drawing by, by uh, John Evelyn of the house and the gardens. And you can see it's quite grand. Um, fear of plague persuaded his parents to send him to his grandfather, a ship owner in Lewis. Uh, and then he went on from there to um, Oxford, where he never took his degree but that was quite common in those days for gentlemen. A brief stint at the Middle Temple was overtaken by political events. At the outbreak of the English Civil War, Evelyn secured permission from Charles I to travel abroad. During this period, he not only observed the great European gardens, initiating his passion for horticulture, but also studied various branches of science or natural philosophy, as it would have been known. In the Low Countries, he matriculated at the University of Leiden. Um, in Padua, he studied human physiology uh, with the professor of anatomy and viewed dissect dissections in the university's lovely anatomy theatre there. In Paris, he attended chemistry lessons uh, given by Nicaise Lefebvre. His reason for being in Paris was to marry the young daughter of the British resident, Sir Richard Brown. This portrait was painted to celebrate his engagement to Mary Brown. The art, the, I hope you can see it, the, the details. The, uh, the artist, um, Robert Walker, originally had Evelyn holding a miniature of his intended bride, but the groom rather unromantically asked for a skull to be shown instead. Um, she was quite a lady, Mary Evelyn, coping with this. In 1652, the newly married couple returned to England, setting up home at Says Court in Deptford, an estate belonging to the Brown family. For the rest of the decade that uh, the royalists described as, as a long winter, Evelyn devoted himself to creating a famous garden. 
he also corresponded with others interested in science. A club for experimental philosophy that had been formed in Oxford met first in the lodgings of the physician William Petty, and after he went to Ireland, in the rooms of John Wilkins, who was the warden of Wadham College. Wilkins persuaded Robert Boyle to come to Oxford, where he began his famous experiments on the nature of air, assisted by Robert Hooke. When Evelyn paid a visit to Wadham in 1654, Wilkins took him to see the beehives constructed in the college gardens by one of his students, Christopher Wren. Evelyn recorded in his diary how Wren had made these of glass, built like castles and palaces, and so ordered them one upon another as to take the honey without destroying the bees. He was shown other curiosities created by Wren, whom he described as that prodigious young scholar. Pepys could not have come from a more different background. He was born in 1633 in Salisbury Court in London in a house next to St Bride's Church in Fleet Street. Um, and so he would have been in one of those closely packed houses. You can see St Paul's Cathedral, the old cathedral, and then if you go along, there's the fleet, and it's just this side. Salisbury Court is actually a bit of open ground, but he was, he was born in the, at the top of that, of, of, the, uh, of, of the court. Um, his father was a tailor, catering for the nearby legal profession. His mother had been a laundry maid before marriage. There was very little money in his immediate family, but fortunately Samuel had more influential relations who must have spotted that he was an intelligent boy with an inquiring mind. He was therefore sent first to Huntingdon Grammar School and then to St Paul's, one of the best educational establishments in the country, and of course run by the Mercers. Um, Pepys went on to study at Magdalen College, Cambridge, and did take his degree, enjoying his time there and doing well. Back in London in the 1650s, he secured a position as clerk to his cousin Edward Montague, a rising star in the Commonwealth period. And at the restoration of Charles II in 1660, Montague helped Pepys become clerk of the Acts at the Navy Board. This portrait of, of Pepys, painted by, uh, in 1666, shows him holding his own composition, a setting of a song. Pepys was very musical and was also fascinated by uh, science, having received rudimentary instruction in the four subjects of the quadrivium, quadrivium <laughs> mathematics, geometry, astronomy, and music while at Magdalen College. In a letter to his cousin Montague, he referred to them both attending experiments in the 1650s on magnetism. So I was surprised to read in his diary for 1661 that when Pepys went to a meeting at Gresham College with his uh, London instrument, instrument maker friend, he noted that this was his first visit. On the face of it, the young, curious Pepys would seem a natural attender of the Gresham Lectures, on music, mathematics, and astronomy. But the lectures established as a result of Sir Thomas Gresham's generous request were experiencing difficult times. As early as 1613, one commentator had asked, what good does these public readings, which have now been a reasonable time, continued in this city, 
with great charge, to good purpose, but little profit may be guessed at, by the little audience which do commonly fre frequent them. <laughs> Glad it doesn't continue like this. Uh, a decade on, the dramatist Ben Johnson was poking fun at the college, albeit in a gentle manner for him, in an imaginary institution of cantors. Cantors referred to specialised terms used by particular social groups. In the staple of news, first performed in 1626, he had one of the leading characters declare, and here stands my father rector, a new professors, you shall all profess something and live there with her grace and me. Your founders, I'll endow it with lands and means, and Lickfinger shall be my master cook. You, cousin Fitton, shall as a courtier read the politics. Dr. Almanac, he shall read astrology. Sherfield should read the military arts, and Horace here, the art of poetry. The military arts that Sherfield was to teach was on carving meat and assaulting cold custard pies. <laughs> In a tract published in 1647 entitled Sir Thomas Gresham, His Ghost, the spirit of the financier walked the streets of London at night to mourn the fact that the professors were not fulfilling their obligations. While the authorities were accused of using the funds designated to the college for other purposes. Two years later, a proposal for reform was drawn up, probably by William Petty. The chairs of divinity, law and rhetoric should be done away with as they were no longer of use to the citizens of London who could get their information provided from books and from sermons in the case of divinity. Given the practical nature of the remaining four disciplines, the teaching should be directed towards experiment and utility. An ambitious portfolio, portfolio should be given to the professor of astronomy to teach men to know and find out all the most known and remarkable stars and planets, and how to observe their motions, distances, eclipses, etc., and make use of these phenomena or observations, either to the examining, correcting, or new forming of theories and systems of the world. He may also treat of dialing, navigation, and geography, and show the practice of whatsoever is practical. The professorships of divinity, law, and rhetoric should be replaced by those qualified um, uh, to, to teach uh, mag magnetism, optics, armaments, and trades, such as shipbuilding. These ambitious reforms were not implemented, although when Christopher Wren, that prodigious young scholar, became Gresham Professor of Astronomy in the summer of 1657, his inaugural lecture propounded considerations about experimental philosophy, and particularly astronomy, that convinced his audience that there were exciting times ahead. A year later, with the sudden death of Oliver Cromwell, political changes unfolded with extraordinary rapidity, and the fortunes of Gresham College were set upon a different course. <coughs> After Charles II had been restored to the throne, a meeting was held at the college to create a new society for the promotion of natural knowledge. This inaugural meeting was attended by 12 people from a variety of backgrounds, former members of the Oxford Club, such as John Wilkins and Christopher Wren and William Petty, prominent members of the Royal Court, including William Lord Brownker, 
who became the society's first president, and London physicians and intellectuals such as Lawrence Rook, Gresham Professor of Geometry. This original 12 drew up a list of 40 people, and this second group included John Evelyn and Pepys's uh, kinsman and patron, Edward Montague, now elevated to the earldom of Sandwich. The royal seal of approval was achieved with the election of the king, his brother James Duke of York, and his cousin Prince Rupert of the Rhine. Uh, and in 1662, the society received its first charter, making it the Royal Society. By the early summer of the following year, the membership had risen to 135, and they're known as the original fellows. John Evelyn had been as instrumental in getting the king interested in the society and designed the coat of arms with its motto, Nullu, Nullis in Verba, taking nobody's word for it. Uh, particularly appropriate for an institution whose primary motive was knowledge through practical experiment. He also provided the idea uh, for uh, the image to appear on the frontispiece of the history of the society. This shows Charles II being crowned by fame with Brownker, the society's first president, and by this time uh, Pepys' naval superior. On, and he's on the left... And on the right is uh, Francis Bacon. He had advocated the pursuit of knowledge through inquiry and experiment at the beginning of the 17th century, so that he was regarded by Evelyn and his acquaintances and his contemporaries as the godfather of their new society. In addition to the regular meetings at Gresham College, experiments were held in different parts of the city. Evelyn, for instance, went off to a private garden uh, near St. James's Park to satisfy the king's curiosity about Mimosa pudica. The sensitive plant was tested not only by being touched, but also with the application of nitric acid and the use of a glass to intensify the sun's rays. An experiment with an arched vial to sound strings for the keyboard was held at London's post office. Both Evelyn and Pepys recorded this occasion in their diaries, the latter with his musical ear noted with disapproval the awful sounds that was produced by this automaton. Samuel Pepys was elected a fellow in 1665. The meeting that day at Gresham uh, College witnessed an experiment conducted by Robert Hooke, now the Society's Curator of Experiments. As Pepys noted in his diary, the theme was the nature of fire and how it goes out in a place where the air is not free, using an air pump or pneumatic engine. He went on to say of Hook that he was, quote, the most and promises the least of any man in the world that I ever saw. Um, he, he, the portrait of, uh, of Hook, oh, well, purported portrait of Hook is over there um, by the door. Um, and uh, it, 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 he, was, he was famous for being thin-skinned and difficult, and I think you can see there he looks quite worried. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, Pepys' uh, um, observation was perceptive, because they, although they both came from a comparatively humble background and both had benefited from an excellent in, um, education, Hook went to Westminster School, uh, while Pepys grew in confidence as he gained status, Hook uh, worried. Um, 
He was to become embroiled in all kinds of arguments, most famously uh, with Isaac Newton over the, uh, over the source of gravity. Um, Hooke, for his part, recognised that Pepys understood his nature, writing in his own diary how he received kindness from him. In 1667, Hooke, with Robert Boyle, prepared a series of experiments for the visit of Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of, the, uh, of Newcastle. Women were specifically excluded from becoming fellows of the Royal Society by the founding statutes. Margaret, however, took advantage of being the wife of William Cavendish, FRS, a member of one of the powerful aristocratic dynasties, and she, so she got an invitation. Pepys was present, present at the meeting, noting in his diary how the experiments were of colours, lodestones, microscope, and of liquors, among others, a one that did, while she was there, turn a piece of roasted mutton into pure blood, which was very rare. He was not impressed by Margaret's response to this special performance, uh, um, uh, writing, I do not like her at all, nor did I hear say anything that was worth hearing but that she was full of admiration, all admiration. It was to be another two centuries before the Royal Society admitted women to their proceedings. Alongside these uh, the practical experiments, fellows devoted time to the receipt, reading, and distribution of written discourses. And from 1665, these were published in a journal, Philosophical Transactions, circulating the Society's work in English throughout Europe and in North America. It's still going today. By the terms of the Royal Charter, the Society could also license books, a way of freeing the work of fellows from potential censorship by the church. The first of these was written by John Evelyn and published in 1664. A silver or a discourse of forest trees and the propagation of timber tackled the shortage of wood for the navy by proposing that landowners should plant trees on their estates. The king had organised the planting of trees, uh, avenues of trees, in the park of uh, his palace at St James, inspired by those that he'd seen on his in his exile in in France. Um, now planting became the height of horticultural fashion and Evelyn's book, an important um, addition, a volume to have in a gentleman's library. And you can see the uh, royal, uh, the uh, coat of arms at the bottom. The following year saw the publication sponsored by the Society of Robert Hooke's Micrographia, which, as the subtitle explained, provided some physiological descriptions of minute bodies made by magnifying glasses with observations and inquiries thereupon. For the first time, um, readers could see images of the tiniest creatures. It, uh, this is a louse. Um, and they were skillfully drawn by Hook, who oversaw the etchings for the book. The project caused a sensation. Pepys not only brought the book, but also a microscope. And after some initial problems to do with sources of light, was able to write in triumph most excellently, things appeared indeed beyond imagination. But just as Gresham, in its initial form, hit difficulties, so the Royal Society lost some of its sparkle. It became beset by financial problems. 
the very strength of the diverse background of the fellows also proved a weakness when courtiers and others initially fascinated by the experiments got bored. With falling attendance and unpaid subscriptions, so the income began to dip. The king, who it was hoped would provide funding, failed to do so and moreover had adopted a cavalier attitude towards the society. In 1664, Pepys was present when his naval colleague and now knight of the realm, William Petty, explained to Charles the trials that he'd undertaken on a double-bottomed boat. Pepys noted in his diary, the king came and stayed an hour or two laughing at Sir William Petty and at Gresham College in general, at which poor Petty was, I perceive, at some loss, but did argue discreetly and bear the unreasonable follies of the king's objections and other bystanders with great discretion and offered to take odds against the king's best boats. But the king would not lay, but cried him down with words only. Gresham College he mightily laughed at for spending time only in weighing of air and doing nothing else since they sat. Ben Johnson had satirised the Gresham lectures in the staple of news, and now the restoration dramatist Thomas Shadwell began to take, make digs at the Royal Society and Gresham College. In his plays, Shadwell was in his plays. Uh, Shadwell was a leading advocate of uh, Johnson's style of, of comedy, where each character represents a humour, displaying one unique and excessive folly and Shadwell was merciless when he came to write The Virtuoso, first performed in 1676. The play's principal character is Sir Nicholas Gimcrack, a rare mechanic philosopher who presents a whole range of experiments, including the transfusion of blood, with Shadwell suggesting that if an ass was transfused, uh, the blood of an ass was transfused to a virtuoso, there would be no discernible difference. <laughs> Sir Nicholas got his friend, uh, gets his friends to bottle air in all parts of England and keeps them like fine wine in his cellar, recalling an experiment with mercury in a barometer conducted by the Royal Society some years earlier to see how air pressure might work on the summit of a mountain in Tenerife. The lightest bottle in Gimcrack's cellar proves to be from Tenerife, while the heaviest comes from Sheerness and the Isle of Dogs. Robert Hooke, always ultra-sensitive, considered the satire was directed at him, noting in his diary after attending a performance, damned dogs, vindica me deus, people almost pointed. But there were references in the play that more appropriately applied to other fellows. Sir Formal Trifle, a florid coxcomb, who indulges in elaborate and abstruse language, reflected a particular trait of John Evelyn. And he suspected this, for when a friend uh, questioned him about the play, he responded sharply. In a letter he wrote, I have learned more profitable and useful things from some hours' conversation in that meeting of the Royal Society than ever I had done from the quintessence and sublimest rapture of those empty casks whose noise you admire at court. He went on to explain that the Society's sole purpose was the investigation of truths and discovery of error and impostures, and had produced many useful inventions, such as watches, cranes, 
pumps and mathematical instruments. In fact, Evelyn's attendance had also been falling off, partly because he recognised that the society was failing to fulfil its ambitious early programme. In the preface to the third edition of Silver, published in 1679, he made an impassioned plea for the Royal Society to be taken seriously and supported. And it was Samuel Pepys who stepped up to the plate and became the, president, the Society's president in 1686. Although he'd never given papers, Pepys had served on the Society's council for many years and was known for his administrative, administrative skills. Beginning his, um, his career in, as clerk of the Navy Board, through his abilities he had risen to become secretary to the Admiralty Board and undertaken, undertaken reform of England's Navy. The problem of subscription arrears was tackled by ordering the names of all miscreants to be omitted from the next list unless they paid up. Sixty were duly scratched, including the powerful aristocrat, the Duke of Buckingham. But Pepys was not going to show favour to those of high status. A written statement of the cash position was demanded, and he prepared orders for the society's clerks, based on his experience at training clerks at the Navy office. These clerks had to be unmarried and childless, with a good knowledge of English, French and Latin, together with some mathematics. They must keep the minutes, not on loose papers, but in books with proper indices. They were to be paid an annual salary of £50. It sort of almost reflects uh, the uh, um, Gresham's... Um, uh, what desires for his, his uh, le um, lecturers, professors, uh, many years before. One of the ways that the society had got itself into trouble was with publishing. With the two titles published in the 1660s, Evelyn Silver and Hook's Micrographia, the society had used its imprimatur, along with guaranteed subscriptions, to get the publishers to take the financial risks. But in the early 1680s, the Society had agreed to fund the entire publication of A History of Fish by Francis Willoughby. When it was published, it turned out to be a financial disaster, as well as being considered academically lightweight. The decision to fund Willoughby's unfortunate uh, book was made before Pepys became president, but he helped to mitigate the situation by contributing a substantial sum of £63 to pay for the plates. While he was uh, president, Pepys ordered the printing of a work with rather a different outcome, Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica. He was not present for subsequent meetings, um, as the summer of 1685 proved extremely busy, with the new king, James II, demanding his in entire attention dealing with naval matters. His name, however, appears on the title page, of the groundbreaking book on the laws of gravity and universal, of motion and universal gravitation, and he was very proud to be associated with it. The energy expended by Samuel Pepys was extraordinary, for his health was always problematic. As a young man, he had undergone the removal of a stone from, the from his bladder, an excruciatingly painful operation without anaesthetic. It was a miracle that he survived, 
and he had recurrent problems thereafter. In the 1680s, he became gradually more housebound, and during his presidency of the Royal Society, some of the meetings were held at his own home in York Buildings in Buckingham Street off the Strand. Evelyn noted in his diary in 1685 how uh, um, Frederick Slayer, who had been Robert Boyle's laboratory assistant, performed an experiment with white phosphorus. In lyrical terms, he described how it first produced a white cloud, then, uh, then boiling diverse coruscations and actual flames of fire mingled with the liquor, which being a little shaken together, fixed diverse suns and stars of real fire, perfectly globular, upon the walls of the glass. It seemed to exhibit a theory of light out of the chaos. When Pepys's health deteriorated even further, some of the members of the Royal Society held informal meetings at his house on a Saturday afternoon, sometimes referred to as tripe day, as this was one of his favorite dishes. Um, as noted earlier, Evelyn was, an elaborate, was elaborate in the extreme in his speaking and writing. Those attending the dinners were described by him as, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce this very easily, deep nosophicists, a term derived from the title of a classical Greek work in which a group of learned men discussed cultural uh, subjects over dinner. The letters between Pepys and Evelyn at this period make clear how important these meetings were to them. And this um, is a page from... Uh, Pepys's collection of uh, engravings, which is at uh, his library in Magdalen College in Cambridge. And you can see he's in the centre, surrounded by what he considered his greatest friends. So at the top is John Evelyn, holding a copy of uh, Silver, his book, um, and it's from a portrait um, uh, painted for Pepys. Uh, uh, Nella painted uh, Evelyn for him. And then uh, his very devoted servant, who came to him as a boy, William Hewer, is at the bottom on the right. And he became a member of the Royal Society and also um, looked after Pepys in his old age. Uh, Dr. Gale is next to him from the Royal Society. Um, and Sir Anthony Dean is on the left in the middle. Um, uh, he's one of his naval colleagues. And then on the right... Uh, James Hublon, one of the richest merchants and um, one of the founders of the Bank of England. But you can see how the Royal Society was, and, and science were, uh, and were really important to Pepys. Such occasions um, inevitably came to an end when Pepys retired to paradisical Clapham as Evelyn described it, and he went and went and lived with William Hewer. But Pepys's devotion to the tenets of the Royal Society is demonstrated by the autopsy carried out at his death in May 1703. This was done at the request of Pepys's nephew, but probably had been stipulated by his uncle, in the hope that his checkered medical history might provide significant evidence for, for physicians. One of the physicians was Hans Sloan, fellow of the Royal Society, founder of the British Museum, uh, who was actually uh, Pepys's uh, personal physician. 
while the other, by a twist of fate, uh, uh, was John Shadwell, son of the dramatist who'd poked so much fun at the institution in his plays. Evelyn continued to attend formal meetings of the Royal Society. In 1702, he heard a paper about some anatomical uh, tables that he had purchased in Padua, decades before during his travels in Europe, and which he had presented to the society. Um, these extraordinary boards had mounted on, him, on them the arteries, veins, the nervous system, and liver and gastric nerves that had been dried after dissection. Um, if you go to the Royal College of Physicians, you will see a, a set of, of, of these up in the gallery. They're absolutely extraordinary. Um, they, they were brought over by uh, two, two young, um, young grand tourists um, in the 1690s. And uh, Evelyn's own uh, boards are in the uh, Royal College of Surgeons. Um, The following year, 1703, uh, Evelyn witnessed Isaac Newton's assumption to the presidency, a post that he held for 20 years. Evelyn himself died at the extraordinarily um, old age of 86 in 1706. The financial crises that had beset the society in the 1670s and 80s were now past. Hooke had died two months before Pepys, but the quarrels among the fellows did not cease. Jokes also continued to be made at the expense of both the Royal Society and the College. For example, in his satirical tour of London, Ned Ward, in his, in his guise as the London spy, described the, the uh, Gresham College as Wiseacres Hall. However, their future in the new, society, a new century had been assured. John Evelyn and Samuel Pepys had derived much from the bequest of Sir Thomas Gresham. And now they, in turn, as loyal and long-serving fellows, had con contributed in no small measure to the survival of that bequest. Thanks very much.